0: Hi and welcome to the Preaching Magazine podcast. This is Michael Didway, I'm the editor of Preaching and the host for today's podcast. And today I've got the privilege of visiting with Andy Stanley. Andy is the founding pastor of North Point Community Church, started in 1995. Today, North Point Ministries include seven churches in the Atlanta area and a network of nearly 100 churches around the world. And through his church, through his podcasts, his uh, television broadcasts, Andy's ministry touches more than 10 million people every week. Uh, Andy's the author of uh, more than 20 books, and the newest book is called Better Decisions, Fewer Regrets, published by Zondervan Press. Andy, thanks so much for
1: joining me today. Well, it's great to talk to you, and as uh, you and I just chatting, we've uh, seen each other off and on through the years, but it's been a while, it's been a minute, so I, I just appreciate the opportunity to catch up, so thanks for having me on the podcast.
0: Well, it has been a while. Thank you for joining me. Um, your newest book is called Better Decisions, Fewer Regrets. Let me ask you, what drew you to that topic, and why do decisions make such a impact in our lives?
1: Well, I think the thing that drew me to the the topic is um, something that breaks my heart. And I uh, constantly say to the folks in our church, I ask them, I say, hey, what breaks your heart? What breaks your heart? Because the thing that breaks your heart is often a thing that God will use to move a person in a direction or in in a different direction. And one of the things... Since I've been in student ministry all those years ago, that breaks my heart is watching people decide their life in the wrong direction. Mm-hmm. Uh, watching people make decisions that undermine their own success, their own future, their own relational integrity. And every pastor or you know anyone who's in ministry of any sort, we all we've all seen this. We we've watched these slow motion you know car accidents, train wrecks, where it's like no 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 no. It's like you know every everybody can see what outcome of this is going to be, except the people making the decisions. Yeah. So um, I've been teaching on this for years, it's, it's certainly a personal passion and of course as a father, I've got three kids in their 20s, two are married, um, I thought I just want to take some of these things I've taught for years and make it super simple, super memorable and so we went with the title, Better Decisions, Fewer Regrets.
0: That's good. Well the book is subtitled, Five Questions to Help You Determine Your Next Move. So yep. what are the five questions that you share as, as sort of a filter to help us in decision-making? Yep.
1: Well, before I say those five things, my I, I opened a book with an illustration about my dad, and in fact, I was just with my dad yesterday. I interviewed him for something we're gonna do, and I reminded him of this. I said, Dad, do you remember growing up I would ask you a question and you just wouldn't answer my questions. You would say, well, things like, what would you do if I wasn't here or how would you respond to that if I wasn't here? And I would say, Dad, but you are here. And (laughs) and he was so great early on at pushing me back into the decision-making role. Um, And one of the things that he taught me, he taught me questions. Now, he wasn't trying to teach me the questions, he would just ask me these questions and it, it so important and this is part of why i wrote the book as well there is a there is a very important connection between the questions we ask and the decisions that we make in fact anybody who's gone to a counselor knows most of the time the counselor is not going to tell you what to do the, the counselor just asks questions they put down these little breadcrumbs that ultimately lead us hopefully you know to the right decision so essentially i in this book i'm going to give the people people, the questions ahead of time. Here are five questions that if you ask these consistently um, when making any kind of significant decision, you are going to make a better decision and you're going to live with fewer regrets. And I didn't make any of these up. I learned them from my dad. I learned them through life. It's just a ministry. So the five questions are, why am I doing this really? Why am I doing this really? This is the self-leadership question. You know, the most difficult person will ever lead is the person in the mirror. So why am I I moving in really? Why am I purchasing this really? Why am I doing this really? Second question is, what story do I want to tell? Because Michael and, and anyone who's, you know, past 30 years old, we understand this. Every decision we make eventually just becomes a part of the story of our life. It's not our entire life. It's just a season or a chapter of our life. So if we stop in the middle of a decision And ask this question okay when this decision is nothing more than a story i tell what story do i want to tell so the second question is what story do i want to tell the third question is is there attention that deserves my attention this is the conscience question is there attention that deserves my attention i feel like i know what the best option is i'm about to make that decision but there's just something on the inside of me that's like Mm, you know, my dad used to call it a check in his spirit, and oftentimes there's no content, there's no reasoning, there's just a, there's just an internal hesitation, and oftentimes, as, you know, everybody listening or reading this knows, um, oftentimes that's just the Holy Spirit that's, uh, you know, a little bit ahead of our knowledge, a little bit ahead of our insight, saying, if you'll pause long enough. I'll fill in the blank, but don't, you know, don't jump. You know, those hesitations, those are those are red lights, yellow lights, they're not green lights. So what yeah. is your attention that deserves my attention? But number four, what is the wise thing for me to do? And I've written a lot on this question, but it has been, this is one of the early, this is one of the questions my dad gave me early. Okay, Andy, but what's the wise thing to do? Not what is the right thing to do? This is better. What is the wise thing to do, and and then the book, I tease it out to ask the question, you know, in light of my past experience, my current circumstances, my future hopes and dreams, what is the wise thing for me to do, and then the last question is, what does love require of me, this is the relationship question, what does love require of me, not what do I want to do, not how do I make things even, not how does she respond to me, but... If I'm really going to take Jesus' new command seriously, you know, my new command is just that you love each other the way that I've loved you, by this all men will know that you're my follower, my disciple if you love one another. If that's really our marching orders as believers, then at every relational junction and in the context of every relational decision, I need to stop and ask, okay, what does love require of me? And any married couple, any dating couple, any engaged couple, if both people get in the habit of pausing before they respond and ask the question, what does love require of me? It is the game changing question relationally. So those, those are the five. Why am I doing this really? What story do I want to tell? Is there attention that deserves my attention? What is the wise thing for me to do? And what does love require of me? That's really helpful.
0: Well, you know, most of us can look back on our lives and we can see some decisions that we've made. You know, we really wish we could redo.
1: So yeah, you know,
0: what are some of the things that,
1: that lead us to make bad decisions? <laughs> Well, one of the things I talk about in the book is that Whereas most of us would say we aren't very good at selling anything or selling people on anything, but the truth is when it comes to selling ourselves on a bad idea, we are extraordinary. And so I talk a little bit about the psychology and the self-talk that we use to sell ourselves on bad ideas. In fact, in the book I say, when you catch yourself selling yourself, you need to stop because you rarely have to sell yourself on a good idea, Mm. it's only the bad ideas that we begin you know, coming up with all kinds of ridiculous reasons why we should do something or why we shouldn't do something. So if we can stop the salesman on the inside of us and ask these five questions, it puts the salesman you know, in, in his or her proper place. In fact, one of the interesting exercises I leave people through a book is I said this, what if you were at a store, a retail store, and the salesperson said to you the same things that you say to yourself? You would be offended I mean, you know, you're know, you online and you're gonna order something and you think, well, I don't really need it. And then you think to yourself, yeah, well, if I don't like it, I can just give it away. Well, imagine somebody at a retail store said, well, go ahead and buy it. If you don't like it, you can just donate it. You would just, you would be offended. Or if the salesperson said to you, hey, you've already got one of these, but this one really doesn't do much more than the, the one you already have does, but you should go ahead and buy it anyway because it's newer and it's shinier and your friends will be impressed. Well, we would think well, what a ridiculous pitch that is. Is. but we, we use those kind that kind of reasoning on ourselves all the time and if we can get it out there if we can look in the mirror and say to ourselves out loud these ridiculous things we tell ourselves internally we see them for what they are and suddenly they lose their power and again these are just some of the exercises i include in the book you know, again, to help us kind of quiet the salesman and the saleswoman inside of us and just listen to wisdom and listen to that still small voice of our Heavenly Father trying to lead us in the way of wisdom.
0: Yeah, that's good. Now, as a pastor, are there some particular things that you do to try to make sure that you're making good decisions
1: for your ministry and for your church? Yeah, um, all the time. I am. Uh, I, as much as I am positioned as a point leader at our organization, I have a real board that holds me really accountable. I'm surrounded by... People that I listen to, I I learned this from my dad. You, no matter how wise you are, you're just, you know, one neuron in the corporate brain, and it takes all the input and it takes the, um, you know, the collaboration of a lot of people to make great decisions. Somebody has to stand up and make the decision, somebody has to stand up and announce the decision and own the decision. But great leaders, the the point of leadership isn't to make all the decisions, it's to own the decisions once they're made. Mm. So I have, um, I've learned really by watching other really good leaders and some leaders. Who have gotten themselves in trouble because they got isolated? They felt like they're, you know, they are supposed to come out of the prayer closet with all the insight and all the answers and just announce it to the congregation and then, you know, mm. yeah. give the marching orders. I don't lead that way. That is not a New Testament. Way to lead. Um, Paul's pretty clear that we're a body, and I am just one member of the body. It just so happens I'm, I get to be the one that wears the microphone, but I'm not the smartest person in our organization, and I'm not even the best leader in our organization. So, you know, some people, you know, surrounding ourselves with people. Um, That are wiser than us. Uh, Jim Collins has this statement. I heard him make in a speech one time. He said, Aspire to be the dumbest person in the room. Aspire (laughs) to be the dumbest person in the room. And as I think about our board and our stewardship team, I look around that room and I think, you know what? I might really be the dumbest person in this room, but that just helps me, you know, make better decisions as a leader and a pastor.
0: That's great. I'll be teaching a leadership class in the spring. I'm going to use that.
1: (laughs) There you go. Yeah, yeah.
0: Now, I, does this
1: particular book grow out of a sermon series? No, this, this particular book, I, I, in fact, I, as, when I was writing the manuscript, I thought, gee, I should teach these five questions. I have taught all of this content in some one context or another. I mean, I did an entire series on um in light of my past experience, current circumstances, future hopes and dreams, what is the wise thing to do. Um, my book, Irresistible, um, is kind of built around this question, what is the you know, what does love require of me? So these are things I've taught through the years. But as I started thinking about my own children and hopefully my future grandchildren and just the, the role decision making makes the role decision making takes in our life because we really are, um, well, like I say this way, our decisions determine the direction and the quality of our life, they they just do. Our decisions are like the steering wheel of our life. Even our reactions or responses to decisions other people have made about us, we still respond in some way to those decisions. And once again, that's our decision. So our decisions determine the direction and quality of our life. So I wanted a bite-size, sum it up, easy to memorize, easy to keep you know, right in front of us tool that I can give people to say, hey, as you're making big decisions, just ask these five questions. You will make a better decision and consequently you will live with less or fewer regrets.
0: Yeah, good. Now, on another topic altogether, I know that, like most churches in America, North Point has been impacted by the pandemic. And, yep. and I understand that you guys will not be physically regathering until 2021. So how has the pandemic impacted your preaching? You know, have, you, have you had any particular yeah. strategy for preaching during yeah. the pandemic?
1: Yes, absolutely. And I love talking about this, but just shut me up the fight go too long um so our you know the way we're staying in our communities our churches are not closed we're just not gathering on sunday morning with hundreds of thousands of people in rooms sitting shoulder to shoulder like tonight we're doing a night of worship and tomorrow night on our lawn most of our campuses have some green space that we can use to tonight you know the last time we did this we had three thousand people we actually painted circles all over the lawn six feet apart so each family shows up and they they bring their chairs <laughs> and they sit in a circle so we're socially distanced but we're able to put you know hundreds and hundreds of people out on the lawn and do a night of worship and we did communion last time um, our, our high school and middle school groups are meeting in driveways, they're meeting in the church parking lot so actually it has been a lot of fun and I don't want to downplay the tragedy, we've had many many staff members sick, several deaths but in terms of revisioning and re envisioning ministry, um, we've we've learned a lot of things. So that you know, that's kind of the macro level. We are definitely not closed. I'm doing we've done baptism services outside. I've done two funerals. I have another funeral coming up next weekend. Um, fortunately none of the three were covid related, but you know, life goes on, so the church goes on, pastoring goes on. In terms of preaching, um, The first two Sundays we didn't have anybody in the room, I preached my normal way, which I knew I was gonna hate because I preached to an empty room before and it's just no fun. And I realized, okay, I'm trying to do, I'm trying to take the old approach and put it in a new box, you know, a little bit of old wineskin and old wine, new wine and old wineskins, just to not literally what Jesus meant, but you know, trying to mix two things that I really shouldn't mix. So I told our staff, okay, we're not doing that anymore. We are now creating a television program because that's what this is. Everybody is on the other end of a screen. There's nobody in the room. So let's not pretend, let's not do a hybrid. Let's recreate our worship services with somebody sitting at home in mind. And once we did that, then in terms of my preaching to get to the point of your question i manuscript my entire sermon which i've never done before and i read the entire thing off a teleprompter Hmm. um and i've gotten i've gotten feedback and we've critiqued this and after about three weeks of this i finally found a rhythm to where i don't think people can tell i'm reading this i mean i've rehearsed it enough in my mind but what it does it allows me or forces me to look right down the barrel of that lens because that's where people are seated. I, I don't have to yeah. look all over the auditorium, nobody's there. <laughs> the people on the other end of the camera know that nobody's there, so, you know, why pretend? So I have dramatically altered my approach both to preparation and to preaching because of COVID, and I feel like it has forced me to develop kind of a new skill in terms of a 30-minute presentation straight to teleprompter. I've never never done that before. Yeah. So, um, but again, the point of all that is during seasons like this, we should all make adjustments. Um, don't let a pandemic go to waste. You know, every time mm-hmm. there's uncertainty, there's opportunity. And so I've really pushed our staff to think about and think in terms of, hey, what are our, what are our new opportunities that are either going to go away when this is over, and we certainly hope it's over soon, um, but what are the things that we're learning in the meantime that we can carry forward. So, yeah, I have definitely changed my approach to preaching in this season.
0: Yeah, that, that is kind of to follow up on that. You mentioned what we've, you know, what we're learning now. Are there, is there anything you've really, you've learned during the pandemic that you've said, you know, even after this is over,
1: yeah. we're going to mm-hmm. continue to do this. Yeah, well, our student ministries and our adult small groups have all gotten so accustomed to using Zoom or a couple of other um, gathering platforms. I think we will always do that or include that. In other words, so, you know, our 15 high school girls get together in a room and somebody opens a laptop and they invite the girls that couldn't be there to to tune in on Zoom because they're, you know, they're meeting on Zoom all the time now or already as they meet and they're starting these driveway groups, they're still opening a laptop for the two or three girls or two or three guys that can't be there. So I think this hybrid or this mixture of live and, um, you know, Zoom gatherings, even in the context of small groups, is going to be a permanent fixture in our small group, um, and you know, in our small group strategy. I mean, why not? You know, people travel, but now they don't have to miss. And of course, that technology existed before, but now everybody knows how to use it, or most people do. And it's you know, it's more intuitive, and people have seen that it works. You can have an effective small group meeting as, as just as you can an effective meeting. So those kinds of things. Um, I, we have shortened our services our online. We just assume an online audience doesn't, you know, probably wants a bite sized you know, you know, a little bit shorter service. Yeah. I think that's gonna impact some things. The other thing, and I don't know what to do with this, we pre-record everything now. Nothing is live for reasons that are probably not as interesting as they are to me as they are to everybody else. But so we've we pre-recorded everything, which means We turn on our Sunday morning worship service stream at 7 a.m., and people are loving it because at first we were opening it at 9, and I'm like, there we go again. We've (laughs) we've mixed two worlds unintentionally. People don't have to get up and get dressed and get there by 9. They're up at 7. You know, parents with kids, they would like to watch the service at 7 or 7.30 or 8 before their kids are even up and before the online content for their kids starts. So uh, being able to um, start these worship services, even with groups that gather for these online, to open it up early, that's been a super interesting thing. I'm not sure how we would continue that. but people that really enjoyed that having that option. So those are just a few things.
0: Yeah, that's very good. Let me ask one last question. So do you have any particular plan for what you're gonna be preaching uh, when North Point finally starts physically regathering hopefully next year? Yes,
1: I'm glad you asked that. The other vision I've cast for our staff, we have about 550 staff, I think we have eight, we have, you know, we have actually nine campuses now kind of scattered around the Atlanta area. And so when we've had our all-staff meetings, especially early on, I said, look, this, uh, what we're going to do, we're not going to restart. We're going to start over. I want you to think about we're launching a church for the first time. So don't just think in terms of, oh, I can't wait till we get back to what we were doing. I said, listen, that would be a complete waste of this break. The best way to approach this is to ask if we were starting over what would we keep doing what would we stop doing and what would we do different and so when we open i'm actually going to do a message series as if it was the first few weeks of a brand new church where i'm casting vision of why are we here why are we doing this here's the three things you need to remember here's the four things we always do just kind of our basic almost leadership training for everybody in the church to try to instill in everybody not just our staff so let's let's act like a startup, and because we're never going to get this opportunity again, <laughs> I hope, right, in our lifetime. So um, we really are trying to, to gear up or to position when we open as a, not just getting back to normal or a reopen, but a, a start over. And again, that has so energized our staff to kind of just put everything on the table and say, hey, what would we do different? And again, our church is 25 years old. This October is our birthday. Um, so it's, you know, it's time to ask some of those questions anyway. So that's kind of our approach.
0: That is a great insight. I think that's something that a lot of churches could really benefit from taking that approach. Also. Well, well thanks. We've been. Uh, I've been visiting today with Andy Stanley, and his newest book is Better Decisions, Fewer Regrets. is published by Zondervan. Andy, thanks so much for taking time to visit today.
1: Michael, thank you so much for inviting me. And the only last thing I would say is this. Every parent with middle school and high school students, you need to buy this book. Any one of these five questions could be life changing for your students. So don't just think in terms of what this would do for you. This is e- this is this content is so easily transferable to your kids and your grandkids. So, but thanks for allowing me to chat about all that, Michael. It's good to talk to you. Great.